0: This morning, I'll ask you to open your Bibles up with me to Genesis chapter 6. And last week, we came through the first several verses of chapter 6, and though strange as they are, they're instructive to us, and they actually answer a lot of questions that we have about the Bible in general. But we're going to finish up chapter 6 this morning, also going to back up and take another run at the first few verses as well. So we will be covering the whole chapter this morning. And it came to my attention this morning, and I don't know if I fully expressed it last week. I know that I said that Genesis 6 was special to me, but I don't know if I elaborated on why it was special to me. But it was this passage that when I was confronted with it, it challenged me in such a way that it made me dig into it. It made me figure out what it was actually saying and, you know, how the rest of the Bible related to what it was saying. And that brought me a new appreciation for the text. Now, I had I'd grown up in church and I believed the Bible. I believed it was the inerrant word of God, that it was true, that it was reliable. But this gave me a greater and deeper appreciation for the actual historicity and the veracity of the text, because as you dig into this, you will find proof of what it's saying. And so it's a special passage to me because that's what started my deep dive into really figuring out what does the Bible say, to really taking it seriously. And that's what eventually led me into ministry. And so it, it comes full circle here for me. And I love to teach and talk on this passage because of that. Now, let's read through these first few verses, and then we're going to give it a real quick pass and then continue on. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's through verse 12. Now, Verses 1 through 4, this is kind of where we really focused last week, so I'm not going to dwell on this this morning, but I did want to hit it really quick before we moved on. This passage is giving us a glimpse into the evil that really pervaded the world in the years leading up to the flood. It was a very supernatural place, and there was all sorts of this evil being practiced, We get a glimpse of it here. These sons of God, the fallen angels, saw these human women. They saw that they were beautiful. And it says that they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the offspring of this unholy union were the Nephilim. And that's the word that it uses in verse four. There were giants. That is Nephilim on the earth in those days. This was Satan's attempt at corrupting the image of God, in effect, the gene pool of humanity. And that so that the Messiah could not be born of pure human lineage. And I know this is all interesting history, but there's a good reason that we should pay attention to what happened right before the flood in the days of Noah. It's because Jesus likened the days of Noah to the days that would just precede his coming. Let's do turn together to Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. We're going to camp out here for just a moment. We're going to see what Jesus says about the days of Noah. That is Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. Jesus says, But of that day and hour, no one knows... Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. And so it's clear that this passage is referring to the days leading up to the rapture of the church. There's this aspect of surprise. Jesus hammers this point that it will be sudden and surprising when the church is taken out of the world. And this doesn't fit the description of the second coming, because those alive during the tribulation who are privy to this will know exactly when Jesus is coming. We know that it's seven years after the beginning of the 70th week. And clarification point here, the rapture does not begin the 70th week. The rapture is not the beginning of that 70th week. It's the covenant that is signed between Antichrist and Israel. He will confirm a covenant with the many. That is the beginning of the 70th week. And we know that three and a half years after that comes the abomination of desolation. And three and a half after that is the second coming of Christ. And so it won't be a surprise to those who love his appearing, right? If you're privy to what the Bible says about his second coming, and you're living through the tribulation, that won't be a surprise. It will be a surprise to those who don't know, who don't believe. But the rapture is a surprise to everyone. No one knows when that's going to happen. And those days immediately preceding the rapture, Jesus likens to the days just before the flood. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And as that day approaches, the world will begin to look like it did in Noah's day. So it's a good idea that we understand the world that Noah lived in. We know from this first part of Genesis 6 that there was this seeking after strange flesh. And that's the term that Jude uses for it. This specific sin gripped both Sodom and Gomorrah and these angels who sinned. And there is some insinuation in the text that these human women were not always willing participants in this action. We're actually seeing this kind of perversion in the world today, in our current culture. And it's in our face right now. Um, If you're not aware, several years ago, Katy Perry came out with a song called E.T. That's the title of the song. And in this song, she sings about having relations with an alien. And it's shocking. I'm not going to read any lyrics for you, but you're welcome to look them up if you wish. It's it's disgusting, to be quite honest. And there's also a much newer song by Doja Cat that was just came out, and the music video is just horrendous. I and mean, there is imagery of her being intimate with this satanic-looking demonic figure. And it's it's in our face right now. So this kind of thing is not foreign to the culture that we're living in. And it has some very dark roots that we see in Genesis 6. Moving on in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, that's pretty straightforward. But I have a feeling that we don't always get the full severity of this. Because we look around and we see evil. But it says that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is like next level. This is not just maybe having a thought pop into your mind every once in a while. If we are to this point, then we better watch because that satisfies one of the criteria for the days of Noah, the evil abounding in the world. I think it's obvious that Noah is not included in this statement. So does that mean that it only encompasses... The unsaved world. So Noah is not one whose thoughts were only evil continually, and it would seem that the believing world before the rapture would not fit that description either. So if we're just talking about the unbelieving world, it may very well be possible that we have reached this point of complete depravity. Does it fit? You can decide... But if we're not there yet, we're rapidly approaching. We are moving at light speed. Verse 6 says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Some Bibles will translate this as, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth. Now, using the word repent, doesn't deliver the clearest meaning to our 21st century minds. I like the translation sorry better, and that's what the New King James renders it as. The second part of the sentence really clarifies what's going on here. It says, and he was grieved in his heart. That grief is what Naham, which is translated sorry, is also describing. It's that feeling of a torn-apart heart. You're so broken-hearted, and it's such a deep, guttural emotion. And that word, nakam, is difficult to translate, and we'll have a little grace on our translators here. But it refers to a deep breath out of extreme pain or agony. That's what that word that's translated sorry actually means. And we use the word repent in the New Testament to describe a change of mind, metanoia. We're repenting, we're changing from our ways. God does not repent in that way. That's not the right way to look at this. This is really just saying that the wickedness of man whom he had created had caused God such extreme sorrow and grief. He was heartbroken. He took a deep sigh of pain. And I'm sure that parents of a wayward child can relate to this type of emotion, this grief. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's a severe judgment. That is not a slap on the wrist. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. Severe judgment. And just because people were sinful? No, I don't think so. Surely they were. They were sinful, but that's not the the beginning and end of it. It was much deeper than that. The bloodline of the Messiah had to be preserved. And so in this, God is restricting the gene pool to Noah's family through the flood. And then that pure lineage would then repopulate the earth. It would be a fresh start. Verse 8, but. What an important word. But, in contrast to the evil in the world, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And I want you to notice the order of events that's laid out here in verses 8 and 9. First, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then it says that Noah was a just man perfect in his generations, that is, justified. Declared to be righteous. Then Noah was pronounced perfect or complete in his generations. And finally, Noah was able to walk with God. And that showing the genuineness of his faith through his actions. Four times in chapters six and seven, it says that Noah did all that God had commanded him. What a powerful testimony for someone. And this order of events that we see in Noah's life is consistent of the life of any believer. We have been saved by grace through faith. We are justified before God and declared complete, perfected in him. And then we can walk in fellowship with God and demonstrate our genuine faith in him by our works. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. It's a beautiful picture there of our Christian walk. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Now, no doubt, Noah was righteous before God, but he was not sinless. This is not saying that Noah was sinless. He came to God through a sacrifice just like everyone else. In fact, the first thing that he does when he gets off the ark is make a sacrifice to God. But there may be something even deeper communicated through verse 9. It seems that Noah was without spot or physical blemish in his bloodline. There was no corrupting influence of that demonic DNA. And that word tamim, translated perfect, is used in the law to describe the unblemished lamb that was required in the sacrificial system. It speaks of the lack of physical blemishes. So Noah was unblemished in his generations or in his bloodline. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Now, it sure seems like our world checks that box, doesn't it? filled with violence. All you have to do is turn on the news and you get all these reports of violence in the world. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, before we break into verse 13 and beyond, I want to take us on a detour to Hebrews 11. Because Hebrews 11 gives us some insight into what's happening in this whole situation of Noah constructing the ark. In verse 7 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness. Which is according to faith. Hebrews 11 lists several examples of Old Testament men who had considerable faith, and it was accounted to them as righteousness for that faith. Noah's account is the only one which begins and ends with the word faith. Now, Noah was warned of the judgment that would be coming on the world, and he didn't just hear God, he believed God, and he didn't just believe God, he acted on what he believed. And that is that active faith, the saving faith. That's why he's included in this famous faith chapter of Hebrews 11. And Noah's faith is even more remarkable than we can see from the surface of the text, Because God was telling him this judgment would come by rain. Remember, I think it was Genesis 2. It says that there had not been rain on the earth. These guys living contemporary with Noah did not know what rain was. Noah didn't know what rain was. They had never seen it before. Noah was divinely warned of things not yet seen. And he moved with godly fear. He didn't sit back in his rocking chair with Mrs. Noah, sipping on his coffee for a few more days, you know, just letting things play out. No, he got to work. It says he did all that God had commanded him. And you don't have to turn here, but 2 Peter 2.5 says, refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness. And I really can't imagine what Noah would have had to put up with as he was preaching righteousness and building the ark. Now for many, many years, the the best estimate that I've seen as far as the time it took Noah and his family to build the ark is around 75 years. Now, It could be up to 120 when God says, man, will be 120 years. My spirit will not strive with him forever. But the best guess I've seen has come out to about 75 years. So he's working on this huge project. I mean, we're talking longer than a football field. Huge, huge barge is what it is. And the world around him is exceedingly evil. I'm no doubt they would scoff at him, you know, probably make fun of him, have Noah hate clubs, and just probably come at him. And what did his wife have to deal with? You know, my wife has to deal with quite a lot, and I'm not out in the middle of the desert building a boat, you know? I'm sure she was isolated from her friends. She had to choose to stick by his side, all the while preaching righteousness. I have no doubt that Noah extended the invitation on the ark to everyone around him. Come on with me. You'll be saved only through this way. But we'll see later that God knew that no one else would take him up on that offer a preacher of righteousness it seems that his family also helped him to build the ark and we know that methuselah who was born long ago at this point dying he shall send and noah was i have no doubt very keenly aware that when methuselah died the flood would come there was that genuine awareness in noah and i'm sure that he employed methuselah to help him build the ark although maybe not maybe he said hey you you stay back we don't want any big beams coming around so he had kids he had three sons to help him at least three we know of these three they were the ones who survived the flood but i as i imagine this dialogue that must have happened i i think his son's like, you're telling me God told you to build a what? What, what is this, a ship, a, an ark? You're building a box in the middle of the desert so we can all climb in it and be saved from something, and you want us to help you, give up years of our lives to help you build this box. Is that really? Are you sure that that's really what God is asking you to do? Because it's so absurd. And all the while, Noah was a herald of divine truth, a preacher of righteousness to a lost world. And now starting in verse 13, we'll see these instructions that God gave Noah for this ark. We'll read through verses 13 through 16. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above And set the door of the ark on its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. God specifies to Noah that he would use the earth to bring this judgment. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And the instructions begin. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, the experts believe that this wood was what we would call cypress, cypress wood. That's not for sure. We don't know exactly what this was, but it's, it's some kind of sturdy hardwood, you know, real dense material. The word ark that's used here is not the word that's later used for the Ark of the Covenant a different word altogether. But it's the same word that's used of that ark of bulrushes that Moses was placed in to float the Nile. You can find that in Exodus 2.3. So this picture is painted of a box that's meant to float on the water. No navigation purposes required, just floating and preserving life in both cases. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. It's interesting to me that rooms here is elsewhere in the Bible translated as nests. And nests like bird nests. And it seems to be talking about little compartments or rooms for these animals and for Noah's family to live in. To break up the boat into compartments and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Now, pitch is like a tar-like material, real sticky, and it would be used to waterproof the hull of ships. And it became standard practice for shipbuilders to pitch the outside of the hull. But Noah is commanded to pitch it inside and out. That's peculiar. And if you're a shipbuilder, you You just don't generally pitch the inside of a hole. Why could that be? Well, we don't know for sure, but there's some speculation from people who know a lot more than I do that this is probably to preserve the hole of the ark for many, many years. It may be that the ark will show up again, right? And we actually talked about this in Revelation, when we came through Revelation. It is possible that this pitch inside and outside was to preserve the whole of this vessel. Now, this word pitch is translated from the Hebrew kopfer. And in most places in the Old Testament, in fact, in over 70 places in the Old Testament, This word is translated atonement. Atonement. The idea is that it's a covering. It's to cover the whole of the ship. And in other places that it's used, it's an atoning covering. And that would make sense because the ark is literally covered in this pitch. And when you take this with that single door in the ark, it's a picture of Christ being our only way of atonement. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. So God gives to Noah the specific dimensions that he wants this ark to be. And it's quite possible that Noah received more than just these instructions from God. But in writing this down, there was a specific purpose of the writing, and it was not so that we could build a replica of the ark. It was to give us the idea that whatever this was, it was sufficient to carry out its purpose in sustaining life and preserving it through a flood. And so we don't have detailed, detailed blueprints in here. But there are some really interesting things that we can take out of the design of this ark. If the ark's purpose was to preserve the life of both man and animal, it must have been big enough to house two kinds of each animal and seven of the clean animals, we'll get to that, plus Noah and his family plus enough food to sustain all of them. So this had to be a really large vessel. Now, we're going to look at this from a practicality standpoint, because a lot of people that come against this record come against it from the angle of, well, there's no way the ark was big enough to house all of these animals and food and whatnot. In fact, it was. It was plenty big enough. So most land animals are small. Most are small. Sure, there are some huge ones like elephants, rhinos, certain dinosaurs, and the like. But about the average size of a land animal would just be a a bit smaller than a sheep. We can actually work out the dimensions of the ark and find out how spacious it actually was and most believe that the qubit used here was about 18 inches. And that's a good guess and my estimation. This is one of the shorter qubits in recorded history. We're going to use an even smaller qubit. The shortest qubit that I'm aware of in recorded history is 17 and a half inches. And so, for the sake of having a conservative estimate, we're going to use 17 and a half inches as this cubit. Now, there's no hint in scripture that the arc here had a bow or a stern. The insinuation is that it was like a box, like a rectangular prism type of shape. So, the volume that we figure out can be fairly directly applied to the arc. If we just find the volume of this. Rectangular prism that'll be pretty close to the actual volume of the arc. So, with this 17 and a half inch cubit, the arc would have been 438 feet long, 73 feet wide, and 44 feet high. And with these dimensions, the volumetric capacity of the arc would be around 1.4 million cubic feet which is roughly equal to 522 standard railroad cars. 522 standard railroad cars. Livestock cars, in fact. Since we know that about 240 sheep can be transported in one stock car, a total of over 125,000 sheep could have been held on the ark. And the sheep represents, as I mentioned, the average size of land animals. Some larger, some smaller, the sheep is about average. So that leaves us thinking, okay, that's a big boat, you know, that's a good size, but how many animals would it need to house? That's the next question. Most authorities on biological taxonomy estimate that there are less than 18,000 species of mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians on the earth today. Those would be the classes of animals that would have been on the ark. If we doubled that number to account for the extinct species of the past, and we allowed for two individuals of each species, plus five more of each clean species, we would come to a rough number of about 75,000 animals who probably would have been on the ark. Now, in the text, the term kind is used. And not the arbitrary designation of species, which our modern biology people use, right? So kind is broader than species. And so we could reasonably conclude that it would be even fewer animals that would have needed to find space on the ark. And we want to remember that the we determined the volume of the ark was capable of holding up to one hundred twenty five thousand sheep. We calculated using species seventy five thousand that would need to come onto the ark. That's about a sixty percent capacity. So just with the animals on the ark, you're filled to about sixty percent capacity. That's plenty of room for the people food, and other types of things that you would need. And that's using the smallest qubit in history. So it's possible that it was even larger than that. Now, I did mention dinosaurs a second ago, and I'll circle back to that. I just, I wanted to throw that in there. But when I say that there were probably dinosaurs on the ark, the first picture that probably pops into most of our minds is a T-Rex running around (laughs) eat enough on the sheep and other animals. But I don't think that that's really what that would have looked like. Um, First, there's nothing to say that God brought all fully matured animals onto the ark. A juvenile animal, dinosaur specifically, would take up much less room and eat much less food. Also be much less dangerous, Right. (laughs) Now, there may have also been something that God worked out with the animals, like the lion's den incident, you know, shutting the mouths of the lions. That could have also been in play. Um, And it's my opinion that God probably did do that. He probably shut the mouths of the carnivorous animals. And we know that their bodies would have still been able to survive on a diet, of fruits and veggies or plants because that's how they were created. And this wasn't so far removed that all of that would have gone away. I mean, even today, we can survive on fruits and veggies. Now, I'm not advocating for that, but we can do it. And they could certainly do it for a year. They would have been on the ark. So, yes, the dinosaurs probably We're on the ark with Noah. And Henry Morris makes an interesting point in his commentary, pointing out the fact that the animals on the ark must have possessed the genes that make it possible for today's animals to hibernate. Since the genes of animals today came directly through the genes of the animals on the ark, we know that that genetic information must have been present at that time. There certainly would have been no need for hibernation before the flood with the earth's even climate. But with a sharp drop in temperature that probably accompanied this rain, many of the animals on the ark may have fallen into their first hibernation. And that would make it dramatically easier for Noah and his family to take care of all of them. They wouldn't really be eating. They wouldn't be making a ruckus like the T Rex. And it just would have been easier. So, that is certainly a possibility. Now, concerning the ratio used to build the Ark, we now know that it was perfect for this type of craft that was just meant to float. You know, it didn't need to get anywhere specific, no propulsion no navigation. It just had to float, preserve life. Modern battleships and those kinds of ships use a sleeker 7 to 1 or 7.5 to 1 ratio of length to width. But the Ark was a 6 to 1 ratio. It was more of a barge, so it was a little fatter compared to these sleeker battleships. And When scientists look at this and they look at the ratio specifically, you can tip this craft almost to 90 degrees on its side and the displacement and the center of gravity is such that it will right itself. It will come back to center. Almost 90 degrees you can tilt this vessel and it will come back up. That's crazy. And as a craft that just needed to float, that's a good property to have, right? Especially with all this commotion going around, going on around you. So that was pretty cool. And Chuck Missler does a good graphic of this, and he shows you the actual science that goes into it. I'm not going to do that. That's not my bailiwick, but I'll leave that with you to look into if you wish. Now, verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. This window would literally be an opening for light. It would let daylight in. And God does tell Noah to build a singular window. It's not the plural. And it's thought that this window was a one cubit tall, Continuous opening around the perimeter of the ark. And this would have helped to illuminate the inside of the ark, of course, but also to ventilate it. Because with all of those animals and people in there, you know, it probably got a little musty. So this window would help to air it out. And he says, and set the door of the ark in its side. Notice the door. Not one of the doors. There was only one door on the ark. Narrow-minded, I know. But there was only one door. There was only one way someone could be saved from the judgment of God. And that was by this one door in this one ark. You get the idea? There's a single way They could either get on the ark or not get on the ark. And of course, Jesus states in John 10, 7 through 9, that he is the door. This may have been an allusion to the ark, but he doesn't make it very overt, if it is. He does also talk about sheep going in by the door, which he calls himself, which may strengthen this phrase's tie to the ark but it's still a loose illusion, so we'll leave it there. But I do think that we can confidently say that the door to the ark is a type of Christ because we know that he is the only way to salvation and a right relationship with the Father. He's the only way that we can escape the judgment. We all deserve death. We all deserve a very severe punishment for the sins that we've committed. And that's the natural recourse of sin it's death. But there is only one way that we can not have that punishment applied to us. And that's through the blood of Christ, the atonement, the covering of our sins. He says, You shall make it with lower second, and third decks. And that just kind of clarifies the way that the ark was constructed with these three decks. Verse 17, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, And your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So in verse 17, God specifies that He's going to bring floodwaters on the earth, He's going to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth, that is Eretz, the land or the ground, shall die. And so that provides a bit of a qualifier. We know that not all marine life was wiped out. Some of them certainly perished with the upheavals, um, everything, but not all of marine life was wiped out. Many critics will speak of this flood as a local flood. The Bible knows nothing of this flood being local. And you really can't take the Bible seriously and see this as a local flood. I mean, it's it's very emphatic on this point. And this verse is emphatic about the extent and the purpose of the flood, to destroy from heaven all flesh, in which is the breath of life, everything that is on the earth, the land or the ground, shall die. There is no mincing words there. Even the word used here for floodwaters is distinct from other mentions of local floods. This serves to further contrast this flood with others. There is something qualitatively different about this one. This word, mabul, is only used of the flood of Noah, and it's only found in one other place in Scripture outside of Genesis 6 through 9. You can find it in Psalm 29.10. So it seems that we can reasonably assume that that verse also is referring to the flood of Noah, that mabul. Also, when this flood is referred to in the New Testament... The Greek word kataklysmos is uniquely employed instead of the usual Greek word for flood. You can find cataclysmos referenced in Matthew twenty four thirty eight and thirty-nine, Luke seventeen twenty-seven, both of those by Jesus. Second Peter two five and second Peter three six. This event was absolutely unique in all of history. And if it was only a local flood, an ark wouldn't even be necessary because they could move, right? Taking those 75 years and just walking somewhere, you could get pretty much anywhere you needed to go, you know, outside of the extent of a local flood. But if they did build the ark and it was a local flood, The ark would just travel to a lower elevation where there was not floodwaters. And it would come to rest there, not on top of a mountain. You know, I I don't know how people can twist this in such a way that they think it was local. Very clear on the fact. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. This is the first mention of the word covenant in the Bible. God promises Noah that in response to Noah's obedience, he will establish a covenant with him and his family. The details of this covenant would be elaborated on later when they all emerged from the ark. It seems that God didn't want to burden Noah with this extra information at the moment. But he did promise that he would secure this covenant with him and his family. And it's obvious that God knew exactly who would end up on the ark. He knew before they got on the ark, they would only be these eight people, Noah, his wife, his sons, and his son's wives. It seems no one from society responded to Noah's preaching, and they did miss the ark as a result of that. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. This command also will be elaborated on in the beginning of chapter 7. We'll look at that next week. Verse 21, and you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself. And it shall be food for you and for them. And as we mentioned earlier, it's possible that God put these animals into a state of hibernation while they were on the ark. And if this is true, Noah would not have needed to pack that much food because they wouldn't be eating. And in this case, most of the food that he did pack probably would have been used once they were leaving the ark to give them all a good meal after hibernation, before they headed out into this new world. And so that's a very likely scenario there. There were evidently some forms of vegetation already in the newly dried earth, because we see this dove that Noah sends out bring back a branch of an olive tree. So there was something down there, but it probably was slim pickens for the animals. Now, God's purpose for them was to fill the earth, to go out and populate it again. So he certainly would have provided for them, no doubt. But part of that provision may have been in the food that Noah brought with him, giving him a good meal before they head out. It's kind of like when your mom feeds you a good meal before you go off to college. right? She knows it's going to be tough for you out there. Cooking for yourself and all. But even if the animals were not in hibernation, there are some things that will help us conceptualize how only eight people could care for so many animals for over a year. If you've been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, you've seen how they render the inside of the Ark. And this is their best guess. It's not necessarily 100% accurate. But they've built these really interesting innovations into it. And it's all technology that Noah and his family would have had access to. And, I mean, there are shoots for feeding the animals. There's specialized pens for some of them. There's rainwater collection systems. And they even talk about a waste management system that Noah could have built into the ark. And that's all really interesting, and it does help us conceptualize and come to terms how these eight people could have efficiently fed and watered all of these animals. And then verse 22, a very strong testimony for Noah. Thus Noah did. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. That is what real (laughs) faith looks like. That is what faith looks like. According to all God commanded him, so he did. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, and it says he became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah is a remarkable example to us of what this active faith should look like. We know that James had much to say about how our faith should be proved by works. I want you to remember that important events in Noah's life are consistent with the life of every believer. And that's what was laid out in verses 8 and 9. We've been saved by grace through faith. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We are justified before God and declared complete in him. Noah was a just man, perfect or complete in his generations. And then we can walk in fellowship with God and demonstrate our genuine faith in him by our works as Noah did. Noah walked with God and he moved with godly fear. He did something about his beliefs because he held them that strongly. The first thing in each of our lives as it relates to our relationship with God is to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All the works and the moving in faith come after that as a result of your salvation, not for your salvation. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father. 1 John 2:23 tells us whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. If you're trying to work your way into heaven, you're missing the point. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God so that none of us can boast. You'll find that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But a saving faith, as Noah demonstrated, is marked by good works. And in the very next verse there in Ephesians two, 10, we're told that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But our desire to do good works, our desire to follow the commandments of God are not for salvation, but from salvation. They swell up from a place of abundance in our hearts. You know, we're so thankful of what God has done for us that we want to please him. We want to follow his commandments and we want to do good for others. It's not that we're working for salvation, but from salvation. And that seems to be exactly what Noah has demonstrated in this account. Now, as we get into chapter 7 next week, we're going to see more from Noah, more about the flood. And we'll probably come through chapter 8 as well. So it's, it's going to be a good chunk of text that we're going to get through. Just starting off next week, we're going to talk about the fact that God told Noah to bring seven of each kind of clean animal onto the ark. But that designation of clean is a ceremonial definition that's not really codified until the law was given to Moses. So that presents an interesting question. How did Noah know which animals were clean and which were unclean. I'll let you mill on that for this week, and we'll come back next week and we'll talk about it. There's some very interesting insights that we can get from this. Um, So we're going to leave it there for this morning. And please pray with me as we close our study.